0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Let us, let us ask the Lord to feed us from his word. Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight. You who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's hear the word of God as it is given to us in the beginning of Romans chapter 8, the first four verses. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law Of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. If the book of Romans is the high point in all of Scripture explaining to us how we can have peace with God, Romans 8 is the high point of the book of Romans explaining how we can have peace with God. Uh, And so you'll find a number of people waxing elephant, as Max would say, about uh, the beauty of Romans chapter 8. And it is a beautiful chapter. It's a chapter that, if you remember in chapter 7, The operative word was I, the first person singular, I this, I that, I the other thing. The operative word in Romans chapter 8 is pneuma in Greek, which you get pneumaticos, pneumonia, and it's the Greek word for spirit, breath, spirit. And uh, in around 20 of the cases in chapter 8, this word refers to the Spirit of God, to the Holy Spirit. And so you know, for instance, that when scripture makes a claim for authority, what it says is that God has inspired his word. And the word there, inspired, inspired, is theopneustos. Well, it's the same pneuma. So the Holy Spirit breathes out the word of God. Now, here in chapter 8, it's not speaking about the inspiration of Scripture. It's speaking about the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer. And that's the first thing I want to say is, when it says that there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus, remember that the statement, there is no condemnation, is uh, controlled by the statement for those who are in Christ Jesus. That limits... Where there is no condemnation, it limits to whom you can say there is now no condemnation. And, 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 and often today, what the church is doing is the church is looking at people who are living in sin, various sorts of sin, and it's saying to them, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And it's just completely irrational. You know, It's irrational, number one, because people who are living in sin often know they're living in sin, and so they just think you're trite. You know, that you're, that you're a coward. Right? So it doesn't work with them, but it doesn't work doctrinally because it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so it matters what it means to be in Christ Jesus. Okay? Now, We have to notice that the beginning of our passage this morning is the word therefore. And we've seen a number of times that when the Apostle Paul uses the word therefore, it's intended to get you to think about what came before. Given this, I just got done saying this, therefore this. So the question you should have as you hear the word therefore beginning our passage is, What just came before? Now, many of us know, but many of us don't know. Some of you weren't here. So let me go back and rehearse what the Apostle Paul has been writing right before this statement, therefore. Um, I'm just going to read a few verses that immediately precede, come before our passage. The Apostle Paul is writing about himself, and he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Okay, that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I don't want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, And it's a conflict between what he affirms in his heart, in his mind, what is good, but what he does in his flesh. And he's describing this condition of Christians where we're always aware of what is good, and we affirm it, you know. The law is good. We know it is, and we feel it is, and we joyfully can. And yet, even though we joyfully concur... We find ourselves doing the very thing we don't want to do and we find ourselves refusing to do the very thing we want to do. And so if you go through that section we just read and you insert the first statement of our new text that picks up from where we were, listen to it. The Apostle Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, the good that I want, I don't do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. (coughs) He says, sin dwells in me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. He says, evil was present in me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, I see a different law in the members of my body. And then he uses this language, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner, a prisoner of war a prisoner of the law of sin, which therefore there is now no con- He says, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body? Of this says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It begins with the word therefore. That means it points back And I just read to you the things it points back to. We can go through them again. Nothing good dwells in him, therefore. The willing is present, but the doing is not, therefore. The good that he wants to do, he doesn't, but he practices very evil, he doesn't, therefore. Sin dwells in him, therefore. Evil is present in him, therefore. Waging war against what is good, therefore. Wretched man that he is, therefore. There is now no condemnation. Now listen, if you're a believer, if you are in Christ Jesus, this therefore applies to you. You see this, right? It applies to you. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. All these descriptions of the life that you have seeking to do what you joyfully affirm in your mind and failing to do it, Are no condemnation. There are no condemnation. Now, there are two applications of this to us three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, I don't know, twenty. Twenty applications, okay? (laughs) The first application is please. Do not cheapen the gospel of Jesus Christ by going to people who cannot state any of these things. They don't joyfully concur. They're rebels. They don't grieve over their sin and tell them there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. It's a non sequitur. It makes no sense. It doesn't follow. It's illogical. It's irrational. Do not throw out the cheap gospel to people who have no fear of God. Do not do that. If you're not willing to do the lifting of convincing men and women of the holiness of God and of the wickedness of their actions, do not trot out the grace of Jesus Christ. Don't do it. It doesn't make any difference to somebody who doesn't live in the fear of God for you to tell him he's not condemned. Just don't do it. You know, I was talking to Bob about painting my house, and he said he's tired of painting my house, and he won't do it anymore. Isn't isn't that what you said, Bob? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyhow... I told him that the powder of, of our uh, of our paint comes off if I use my you know my high pressure sprayer you know it'll it'll take that powder off and it looks good again you know and uh, Bob was and, and so I was asking Bob how much money I will save when we hire a painter by me doing all the all the pressure washing of the house before the paint's put on and Bob looks at me and Bob says. It don't matter. He said, whoever you hire, he's going to pressure wash it anyhow. Why? Because no painter worth his salt is going to trust any homeowner to prep a job if he's putting good paint on that wall. You know? I mean, it just makes sense, right? Everything, everything in every job is about preparation. Think of being a dentist. You know, uh, I'm done drilling. It stinks in there. I think I'm just going to shove a filling in. <laughs> you know, how many of you want a dentist like that? Don't lie. <laughs> no drilling, just, just fillings, <laughs> you know. Listen, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus comes after an unbelievable description of the suffering of the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of suffering. This is the reason the Apostle Paul at one place says, if Christ has not been raised for the dead, then we are of all men most foolish. And you hear that and you think, well, I guess that's right, but have you thought about it? Why are we of all men most foolish if Christ has not been raised? Well, the reason is that we have given up all things for Jesus Christ. We have given up respectability. We've given up degrees. We've given up tenured positions. We've given up wealth. We've given up our American citizenship. We've given and you say, well, I haven't given up any of those things. And I say, well, maybe you're not in Christ Jesus. And you say, wait, wait, wait. I, what are you saying? That I have to do those works in order to be safe? And I say, no, but if you don't suffer because of Christ Jesus, really suffer. If all men speak well of you, if, as Kierkegaard says, you've twisted Christianity instead of being the most moral wound a man can sustain, it's just sort of removing a beard with shaving cream and a real sharp razor and you don't even notice it. You know. In other words, if your gospel is a gospel that has no cross, and if you can't identify with Romans chapter 7, describing the horror of not doing what you should and doing what you shouldn't while joyfully affirming the law of God, if none of this is true of you, okay, you don't know the holiness of God and you do not know your own sinfulness. Okay? And that is not a Christian. That is not someone who is in Christ. Christianity is miserable without the hope of no condemnation. And when you put your faith in Christ, it's really obnoxious because it sensitizes you. To more sin that you had been overlooking. And the older you get, the more you will see your sin. So, that this man who wrote this conflict up is his personal autobiography. Okay, all that stuff about I don't do what, you know, I wish I did, but I don't, I don't. That man is one of the holiest men that has ever lived. Certainly, one of the men who suffered more than any other man other than our Lord. And that man, at the end of his life in Second Timothy, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. It's very difficult in a decadent age where everybody's fat and rich and complacent for us to be willing to take up our cross. But I will say this. It's also very difficult for us to see the crosses that we bear. All right? And so we tend to build up the issue of persecution today as being, you know, people that go outside, stand in front of a firing squad, and, pew, and oh Lord, would you please allow me to die for you? And so you think about the degree to which we are rich and fat and complacent, and we tend to romanticize martyrdom, persecution, suffering, and say it only happens in China, it only happens in Muslim nations. And and we're oblivious to the fact that every single day you're making a decision whether or not you will confess Christ. And so then I say, well, if you're not taking up your cross, you don't belong to Christ. And immediately everybody says, well, I'm not taking up my cross. And I say, "So, so everybody speaks well of you, right? And you say, yeah, yeah, everybody speaks well of me. It's interesting, often I am more perceptive than people are themselves about the degree to which they take up their cross and follow Christ. So we live in a time where we are convinced that we have religious freedom. And because we have religious freedom, we don't see anything as persecution. Now my point is to say that you can't get to Romans chapter eight verse one unless you can confess chapter seven. Do you understand this? You must be in the throes of self-doubt and self-horror and self abnegation and self, self, disgust. In order to have it be precious to you, that the Holy Spirit says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What sense does it make to say to somebody that doesn't see their suffering for the name of Christ to tell them there's no condemnation for the fact that they've chosen here and there not to suffer for the name of Christ? I mean, you get my point. You have to have a hunger to be fed. And if Romans 8, chapter 1 is food for a soul... That soul has to have been hungry. What are they hungry for? Well, you know what they're hungry for. They're hungry to not be condemned. And if we're going to be Christians in this culture, we have to explain to people that they are under God's condemnation. In fact, beyond his condemnation, they're under the wrath of God. And why? Well, because they are wicked. And you say, well, the word wicked doesn't mean anything to anybody. And I say, who do we have to blame? Only ourselves and our Bibles, our modern Bible translations. If we're speaking politically correctly, it's on us. The Bible doesn't lack condemnation of the ungodly. Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody. And so listen, don't cheapen the precious promises of God. First of all, look at yourself as a Christian and see how you suffer for Jesus. And you do! You do! It's so frustrating to me that today in America we make, make the mistake of thinking that unless suffering is a bullet to our head that we don't really get persecuted. And I really think that for many of you, I've watched you for many years now, I really think that many of you would actually feel less pain if they'd put a gun to your head and shoot you than this ongoing, low-level, intense manipulation of your conscience by liberal moralism. And so you have to see accurately how Romans 7 is true for you. You have to see how you are in play. You have to see how difficult it is for you to live in a world where everybody is a half Christian. And then you see all the little compromises you make. And then you're sick about that compromise, you know? And then you make another one, and then you're sick about it, you know? And all of a sudden, you notice what's going on. You are being gagged constantly, and the people that gag you most are the other Christians. And all of a sudden, you see in horror all the ways you're unfaithful to Jesus Christ at your family reunions. Because it's Christians that are worst, you know? because Christians think that every Christian thinks he's come up with a perfect set of compromises where nobody who is a pagan will ever accuse him of being a hypocrite you know and then if you don't have the same set of compromises that your older sister has at the family reunion you know that's where we suffer and then all of a sudden you begin to see how constantly you want to say the truth but you allow your sister and your brother at the family reunions, you allow your neighbors, you allow your colleagues at work, you allow your wife, you allow your husband, you allow your children to to compromise you. And you say, oh, who's going to save me from this body of death? And at that point, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? Okay? There is no condemnation to those of you who are in Christ Jesus, none. And you say, oh yeah, but I'm such a wuss. And the apostle Paul says, you think you're a wuss, I'm worse. And you say, oh no, 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 I'm much worse. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's one application, okay? Here's another one. Would you please, as parents, this is is a theme, would you please, as parents, convince your children that they should be condemned? Because what I see is a number of children in our church who... Who think that they've awarded themselves the No Condemnation Award? Who think that they're God's gift to the world? Uh, We have a number of children in this church who are quite impressed with themselves. And actually, uh, you're pretty disgusting. Because you don't begin to fear God. And how do I know that? Well, because you don't have any humility. How is it that we can have a fear of condemnation and then work like busy beavers with our children to assure them of never having any any sense of condemnation? And you see it in children who are what? Impertinent. If you don't learn one word from this morning, other than this one, parents... Learn the word impertinent. Because impertinence should never appear in the children of godly parents. There should be a sobriety and self doubt. This is an inalienable right of children of Christian parents. That they never bop in to the presence of adults and nourish. And, and tell themselves that those adults were just waiting for them to bop in. Now, it's in the nature of some children. to It's hard to shake them of that, especially if they're cute. You know? <laughs> I could name a few of my grandchildren, all right, but I won't. I mean, imagine the preciousness of this statement of God, therefore, There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And you know how precious a statement that is to you. You know that that's like having the strong arm of God holding you up against the face of the cliff. And then what? You raise your children in such a way that they take that for granted? That they're just absolutely sure that they're God's gift to mankind? Listen, pray and work for your children to hate their sin and love their Savior. Okay, did you hear me? Pray and work, and don't throw that work on your wife or on your husband. Remember my story about coming home one day, and I got so tired at dinner of having to tell Taylor to chew with his mouth shut. And so one day I said to my my wife, lover, you get him two meals a day. Could you teach him to chew with his mouth shut so I can come home and just eat my dinner? (laughs) So in your marriage, don't throw off on your husband the nasty jobs and you do the good ones. It's unfair. And husbands, of course, the same holds true. Okay? You teach your children to hate their sin. If they don't hate their sin... How are they ever going to rejoice in there being no condemnation? How can someone rejoice in there being no condemnation who is completely oblivious to to, to their sin? And you say well my children don't sin, right? And see, the thing is, none of you would say that to me because you'd know that that would get you, you know, the old bop on the head. Right? But you act that way because your children are impertinent. Your children think much of themselves and their potential. It shouldn't be. Remember that God judges on the basis of to whom much is given, much will be required. So let's say your children have been given a lot. What you should impress upon them is how little humility they have and how the things they have been given are only going to result in them being judged more firmly, right? And this holds for preachers. Not many of us should desire to be teachers, for we can be certain that we who teach will be judged with lesser strictness. Is that what it says? No, it says, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Greater. So if your children have been given gifts, that will only result in them having greater condemnation if they are not in Christ Jesus. So that's another application, okay? I said there are 20, but let's leave it at two, okay? Okay? There is now no more, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's very sweet that that's how the chapter begins and the chapter ends. Remember, it's a chapter on the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit all through this chapter is assuring us that we belong to God and that there is no condemnation. And the last verse of this chapter says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why are we not going to be able to be separated from Christ Jesus and from God? It's love, the love of God. While we were his enemies, he loved us. Remember that the Bible tells us about our community life as a church that love covers a multitude of sins. And with God, isn't this weird, you know? God did it first, and all we have to do is follow him. Remember Pastor Max praying that we will forgive others as our Heavenly Father has forgiven us. You know, once again, it's like, if you're not in the habit of pointing out the sins of your children, what do they have to be forgiven and what do they have to forgive? So that's the declarative statement of of chapter 1. We've seen where it comes from, why it's said. And then there's a reason given in verse 2, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for, because, all right, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now what does this word law mean here, the law of the spirit of life? Well, we know what the law of sin and death is, right? The law of sin and death is what was true of us prior to being in Christ. It was what drove us to the cross. We saw that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We saw that there wasn't even one law that we could even begin to keep. That when we were honest and understood the nature of God's holiness in each of the commandments, we despaired. And so we ran to Jesus Christ, all right? And so we know what it is to run to Christ because we see the law of sin and death in us, right? But then what is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus? Is this law that it's speaking of here a a new set of rules and regulations that we follow that aren't the Mosaic law and aren't the moral law, but are sort of helpful things that make us free, that give us freedom in Christ. No, the word law here is being used to refer to authority and power. And so what it's saying is, for the authority and the power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. In other words, what it really is saying here is for The spirit of life in Christ Jesus has whooped up on the law of sin and of death. It has decimated it. It has absolutely had victory over it. And now you are in the freedom of Christ. This is the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Freedom. Could you ever describe your life prior to Christ as freedom? I know that people think they have freedom, but think back before you came to Christ. Was that free? Such cheap talk in America today about freedom. It's almost as if uh, freedom is a placeholder today for bondage. It now means the exact opposite of the divine definition. Anyhow, the law, we are not under condemnation in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. And then a slight explanation... For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Well, what could the law not do? Well, the law could not produce obedience. The law could not produce holiness. The law is the schoolmaster that drives us to Jesus. The law is the impossibility that makes us hopeless. Okay? And so the law didn't do it. The law did not actually save you it drove you to Christ what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh god did well what's it saying there well what it's saying is you couldn't keep the law it simply condemned you but god did it well how did god do it well it goes on and it says sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin he condemned sin in the flesh Now, we understand what comes before he condemns sin in the flesh. We know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We understand that Christ lived a perfect life and then went to the cross unjustly, was murdered on the cross by sinful men, and bore the sins of the world. We know that. But then it says not just that God did it through his son, putting our sin on his son so that his son suffers his punishment. But it goes on and says he condemned sin in the flesh. How did Christ condemn sin in the flesh? He condemned sin in the flesh by living sinless and then by suffering sin's consequence. And so when we suffer the consequence, the just consequence of sin, of violations of the law, we are condemning. See? We are condemning the sin that causes the suffering. That punishment, that justice, is a condemnation of the sin. You remember back in chapter 3, through his Holy Spirit writing by the Apostle Paul, we read, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested." For what the law, back now to our text, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Oh, Oh, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We fulfill the requirement of the law. How do we do it? We do it by placing our confidence, our hope, our belief, our faith in Jesus. And when we do that, we can't do that without making a quit claim of any of our own filthy righteousness. You cannot come to Christ Putting your faith in him while holding on to something that you think should attract him to yourself. What attracts God to you is God's decision from eternity past that you will belong to him. And he sets his love on you while you're an enemy. Okay? He condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How is it fulfilled? We are in Christ, and Christ is sinless. He's the perfect Lamb of God. and He suffers the consequences of our sin, but he is spotless as a Lamb. And this fulfills the requirements of the law. And then one last thing in our text. It ends with this, this statement, might be fulfilled in us, and then this statement, Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, why is that put in there at the end? I thought we just got done with the law. I thought we all admitted that the flesh has us in bondage as Christians, not just as pagans. I thought there is no condemnation. This kind of sounds condemning to me. You know, it sounds like the Apostle Paul can't resist constant guilt trips. You know, we were just transported to heaven. We were so hopeful. And then all of a sudden, now he comes with, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And our, our response to that is, what? Well, if it's our mother that says it to us, under our breath we go, right. Right, You know, every time the Apostle Paul says, we who do not live by the flesh, but according to the Spirit, we all go, that's me! That be me! Right? So why does the Apostle Paul put that at the end? Well, (laughs) because the Apostle Paul knows our scheming hearts. And he knows how how given to cheap grace we are. And so, after all these statements that just make us feel so relaxed, you know, the gentle dentist, all of a sudden, bam, we who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. <laughs> You know, I was about to, like, take some, like, morphine, you know, and suppress my vital functions. And then God comes back and says, (laughs) Yeah, you're in Christ, and yeah, there's no condemnation, and yeah, you're, you're living according to the Spirit, not the flesh. And you see how you're immediately driven back to Romans 7? This is the normal Christian life. You are given the promises, the promises are true, and then you're reminded that you don't live according to the flesh. Listen, you can't go through your spiritual life trying to decide at this particular moment whether you live according to the flesh and according to the Spirit. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. You're always living according to the flesh. Do you hear me? And you're always living according to the Spirit. And there is no condemnation. And God has condemned sin in Christ. And you are in Christ and have freedom. You who live not according to the flesh, but according to... You see, this is a feature it is not um, God being irrational. It's not God trying to, to play around with you. But it is the very method of the perseverance of the saints. Okay? And so put yourself in it. Go in the instapot. Turn up the heat. Set the cap on the top. And don't ever weasel your way out of any statement of Scripture. And so the final statement this Sunday is, those of you, you know, you're in Christ. Those of you who are in Christ, you know nothing to, there's no condom, those of you who live no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And that's how you raise your children also. Don't ever take the pressure off of them. Let them know that you love them, gaga. And let them know that they are to live according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Okay, Bree? Okay, Bree? How about you, Allie? Huh? Going to live according to the Spirit and not the flesh, which means you cultivate your knowledge of your own sinfulness, right, Brie? Bree? Okay, not other people's sinfulness, but whose? Mine, that's right. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this precious children. We pray that they will grow up not proud, but humble, because they know that there is no hope for them except in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We thank you for these precious promises of Romans 8. Father, explode them in our hearts that we will live in the freedom of Jesus Christ. And Father, keep us living in the spirit and not in the flesh. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.